So tonight I'm going to talk about the present moment. This is why we practice breath meditation. This is our practice, as I've said, perhaps facetiously, but in dead earnestness. Uh, This is a meditation retreat. We practice breath meditation. Uh, We practice the Buddha's practice of mindfulness of breathing. And we practice breath meditation so that we can be present, so that we can come into the present moment. But not just that. It's not just about coming into the present moment. It's also about shaping our experience of the present moment. This is a very important to understand about Anapanasate, mindfulness of breathing. It's not just about being present. Tan Jeff talks about this a lot. I mean, you can be present in a lot of ways that aren't so useful. You know, it's about being present and also shaping our experience of the present moment. And this is why we use the breath, because the breath allows us to do this. Uh, The breath allows us to anchor ourselves, center ourselves in the moment, and it enables us to shape our experience of the moment. It's something quite extraordinary about the breath. This is why we use the breath. So we use the breath because it allows us to come to the present moment, shape our experience of the present moment, and we use the breath because the present moment is where we'll find happiness. This is a path of happiness. This is why we do what we do. This is why we practice mindfulness of breathing, so that we can know happiness, true happiness, a reliable happiness, the happiness inside. This is a path of happiness. The Buddha was once asked, uh, after he gave a Dharma talk and he was answering some questions, and somebody said, you know, all the, all the monks and the nuns and all your lay followers, everybody's so happy. What's up with that? Why is everybody so happy? They're all laughing and smiling. People think, you know, monks, oh, they're so serious. They're all laughing and smiling. Why are they all laughing and smiling? And the Buddha said fairly succinctly, you know, they're happy because they don't brood over the past. They don't dwell in thoughts of the future. They maintain themselves in the present moment. Because the present moment is the place where we find happiness. So they don't brood over the past, they don't dwell in thoughts of the future, they maintain themselves in the present moment. So, you know, we, we were talking in, in some of the groups today about, you know, we, how we talk about these different things and we want to be present. And I think, you know, a mark of our practice developing is we start to understand what those things kind of mean. But we start to understand what those things kind of mean in part because of what we hear people say. But we start asking those questions. You know, we start looking. We start taking an interest. So, you know, I say, well, this is a practice of knowing the present moment. We start to ask and wonder, well, what does that mean? What does that mean to be present? What does that mean to be present? And a good way, of course, to answer that is, what does it mean not to be present? What does it mean not to be present? So the Buddha defined three primary ways that we're not present. One is we're not present when we're chasing after sense experience, when we're chasing after sense pleasure, when we're indulging in those sense pleasures, if it's the television or the internet or the phone. The second is when we're lost in thought worlds. A lot of times, when we're chasing after sense pleasures, you know, we're in thought worlds too. So when we're lost in thought worlds, we're not present. This state of being lost in thought worlds, the Buddha called becoming, becoming. Uh, and the way he defines that is that which is becomes something else. The present moment becomes something else. It's an idea about the present moment. It's thoughts about the present moment. It's an unreality, a creation that we come up with that is not the present moment, and we live in these thought worlds. The Tibetans say it's like we're living in a dream. This is a practice of awakening, and it's like being asleep. And the third way that we're not present is what's what's called non-becoming, and that's when we just check out, go to sleep. So it's really important to know what we mean by not being present. So how do we get from there to the present moment? Well, we have to disentangle ourselves from those sense pleasures. 
You know, so that's one of the things that we're doing in, in training ourselves. We're training ourselves to be present. We're training ourselves to be present. So one of the things that we're doing, of course, is for these few days, disentangling ourselves. Well, not a few days, it's eight days. Disentangling ourselves from some of the sense experiences that we're so used to getting lost in. You know, it's one of the reasons why, again, being the stickler that I am, I made an an urgent plea to consider what your relationship is going to be to that sense pleasure of the smartphone. My job has gotten a lot harder over the last 10, 15 years, you know? When I started doing this, I don't even think people were using email. Personal computers, yeah, but you know, it was like a dial-up modem. So, one of the things that we're doing here, and what we're asked to do, of course, is to disentangle ourselves to some extent from external sense experience. And we're asked in coming to the present to come out of the thought worlds and to come out of the deluded states. So we're asked to come out of the thought worlds and come out of that preoccupation with sense experience and to come to the body to come to the body. So the short form of that would be, you know, what does it mean to come to the present moment? We come out of the head to the body. It's a good way to think about it. It's a good way to think about it. Out of the head to the body. Out of the head to the body. When we're in the body, we're in the present moment. Okay, this is our present moment experience, our human experience, right here within this body. So, you know, we can think of our journey as the journey to the body. The journey to the body. And as I said last night, and as we've been talking about, it's a difficult journey. It's a difficult journey. Why? We don't want to be in the body. We don't want to be in the body. You know, the indication that we don't want to be in the body uh, is really made quite clear by the way that we defend ourselves against being present by getting involved with the hindrances, right? I mean, look at the effort that we make to get out of the present moment, to not be in the body. You know, we're coming here, we say, I'm going to be with the body, I'm going to focus on the breath, and the mind is like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to either fall asleep or I'm going to get involved so deeply in a thought world and get as far away from the body as I possibly can. So being the earnest meditators we are, you know, when those hindrances arise, when restlessness arises and dullness arises, we are aversive to that. We don't like them. And we get frustrated and we start to doubt ourselves and doubt the practice when there's hindrances. And maybe we think we're not good meditators. We're not good meditators. And that's not really the problem. The problem isn't that we're not good meditators, you know, so it's again identifying the problem. The problem isn't that we're not good meditators. The problem is we don't want to be in the body. We don't want to be in the body. You know, for all our talk about, I don't like these hindrances, it's like we don't really want to be in the body. We don't want to be in the body. We don't want to be in the present moment. So how can we change that? How can we change that? You know, that's our dilemma, right? We, 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 we kind of know that this is a path of happiness and we know happiness in the present moment. So we want to make this effort to be present, but we don't want to be present. We don't want to be present. So how can we change that? How can we want to be present? You've got to want to be present. You've got to want to be present almost as much as you don't want to be present. <laughs> So it helps to understand why we don't want to be present and why we don't want to be in the body. I mean, it helps a lot to understand that. You know, and, and to put it somewhat simply, but it's probably what we need, all we need to know, or largely anyway, uh, we don't want to be in the body because we consider the body painful. We view the body as a painful place to be. Our perception of the body is this is a place that's painful. Now, to a large extent, we may not realize that. Most people don't realize that, that they view the body as a painful place to be. So it's really kind of important that we begin to understand that that's what's happening. 
that this is our perception of the body. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of interesting because I've really started to see in these, I mean, on, in these last few days, I've really seen uh, how it's like, I don't want to be in the body. I don't want to go there. Do I have to go there? I don't really want to go there. I don't want to go there because I associate it with something that's painful. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's like a child, you know, I mean, I, somewhat my experience was like that, a child whose home life, is, home life is very difficult, you know, teenager, adolescent, parents are abusive, really an unpleasant and difficult place to be in the home. It's like that child stays away from the, the house, you know? It's like when I was a kid, I, you know, I didn't want to be in the house. I spent as much time as I possibly could outside of the house. I was afraid to be in the house to a large extent, you know, and most of my, <coughs> I would say from the age eight on, it was like one of the primary thought patterns in my mind is I got to get the hell out of here, you know, and when am I going to get out of here and how can I get out of here? And I always say, you know, it's like one of the reasons why I, uh, I studied really hard in high school is because I wanted to get good grades so I could get out. It's like, but that's how we are, you know? We don't want to be in the house. We don't want to be there. And we're at odds with the body. We consider the body a painful landscape. And to some extent it is, right? So we have to kind of begin to understand this. If we look at this body, there's physical pain. There's physical pain that we've, anybody experience any physical pain in the body? Anybody experience any physical pain in the body before they got to the retreat, ever? You know, there's a lot of physical pain in the body. The body's a very vulnerable place, very susceptible to physical pain. The body is susceptible and vulnerable to sickness. Doesn't sound like a hospitable place to me. It's susceptible to aging, I promise. It's susceptible to aging. And it's vulnerable to death. It will die. You know, think about it. I want to go into this place that it's going to be diseased and it's going to age and it's going to die. And that's not the half of it. You know, that's, that's the least of our problems. You know? The biggest problem is that we have emotional pain in the body that's stored in the body. Now, this is the real predominant reason why we don't want to go into the body, because it's emotionally painful. The body's like a minefield of emotional pain, you know, uh, a lifetime of emotional pain. You know, there's that phrase in uh, uh, psychology, you know, the body keeps the score, you know. You know, it's like it's keeping the score. It's tallying up all of our traumas and all of our pain, emotional, all of the times we've uh, suffered and struggled. That's what the Buddha talks about when he talks about that, those four oceans filled with tears, a lifetime of suffering and struggling. You know, that's held right here within this landscape of the body. A lifetime of pain and stress and trauma. I wonder why we don't want to be in the body. You know, but it's really important to understand that, right? It's really important to start to understand why we don't want to be there. You know, meditation teachers, we say, oh, come, be mindful of the breath, be, come to the body. You know? <coughs> it's like, look at what we're telling you to do. You know, at least we should give you some heads up. You know? <laughs> you know, this is one of the reasons why technology is so good and media is so good, because it takes us out of the body. It takes us out of the body could turn on the TV and go onto the internet and go out of the body. You know, McLuhan talked about this. Marshall McLuhan, you know, this is in the early 60s, mid-60s. He said that the different forms of media were like extensions of the central nervous system. He said that our central nervous systems were so out of whack and there was so much dissonance that we wanted to get out of there, so we create external central nervous systems. And this is what the different medias are. 
He called them amputations. We amputate our nervous system and we create these external central nervous systems. It's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And then he said, of course, the problem with that is now we've got this external central nervous system, which is a cause for a lot of dissonance and it creates more dissonance. So then we have to create more sophisticated external central nervous systems. And it's a vicious cycle, right? go from the newspaper to the telegraph. Before the newspaper, there was writing. You know, the Greeks said, this is going to be a problem, writing. <laughs> People are going to leave their bodies. They're not going to be as present. They're going to be in their heads. Yeah. We went from writing to the newspaper, the printing press, the telegraph, the radio. You see, more sophisticated external central nervous systems as life becomes more and more stressful with all of these different technologies. I mean, would any of us disagree that, you know, the computer and the smartphone makes life more stressful? You know, you get a kind of a good comparison of that when you come here. It's like I mentioned to several people that, you know, sometimes I'll just take the weekend off of, you know, the, the internet and the email. You know, it's like, Monday comes and it's like, I don't want to turn that thing off. You know, it's so peaceful. It's so peaceful. And, and I got to turn it on because people are going to get bent out of shape if I don't return their emails, you know? None of you, but... <laughs> you know, the smartphone is perfect, right? It's the most... Because it's the most sophisticated amputation, right? So, you know, we can be in this external central nervous system at all times. It's not like, you know, the TV, you gotta go home, you gotta turn it on, you know, to be able to get out of the body. It's like, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I really feel like, you know, New York is, I, you know, I've been a lot of places, and there's really no place like New York when it comes to being on the smartphone, on the street, walking down the sidewalk in all postures. And I think it's largely because people in New York are so stressed out, you know? And then of course they get more stressed, so they have to be on it even more. But the smartphone's perfect, so you know, whenever there's any kind of dissonance, I can pick up the phone and get out of the body. So the result, of course, is that we get further and further and further and further from the body. And we were talking about this in one of the interviews today, and we were talking about, you know, the question about the smartphone. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sorry, but, you know, I'm using it as a, I mean, it's a very cogent and relevant uh, element of our culture, so it's worthy of discussion. You know, and we were talking in one of the interviews about how the question about the smartphone really comes down for the serious Dharma student, is it good for our practice? Is it good for our practice? I mean, ultimately, as we become more committed to the practice, we look at these, 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 these medias and technologies and external central nervous systems, and we ask, are they good for the practice? You know, maybe at least part of the subtext of that is, do they take us out of the body? Do they take us away from the possibility of knowing a greater happiness, the happiness that we know in the present moment? So mindfulness of breathing was what the Buddha <coughs> learned to practice to make this journey to the body, to make this journey to the body. It's a very elegant and compassionate and wise teaching because what the Buddha has you do is start out small. As you start out really small, just find one spot in the body. Just find one spot. I know it's painful. Just find one spot, one spot that feels kind of good amidst this painful landscape. Can you find that one little spot? That was, that's why that's such an important teaching. You know, seems so obvious. Like, pick a spot to feel the breath where the breath feels good. You know, it's like I was never taught that. I was never taught that. We were taught, I've said this a million times, you know, pick a spot and for the next 10 years, that's your spot. 
You know, so I had my spot, and it was a lot of the time it was painful, and it was difficult, and I stayed there. No wonder why my practice didn't develop. Then Tan Jeff said, why are you doing that? You know, why did you focus on the belly you know, the day after you had a hernia operation? You know? <laughs> it's like, find a different thing. It was like the most compassionate thing. Find a different spot. Find, it's like, oh, this meditation isn't so bad. Now this spot is all right. This feels pretty good. I don't mind putting my attention here as much. That's a very important movement. So we find one spot that feels good. One spot where eh, maybe the mind won't mind staying there so much. And we build off of that. We build off of that. You know, it's like that story of uh, the person who had amnesia, completely couldn't remember anything about his life. You know? And one day he was eating some vanilla ice cream, and he remembered he liked vanilla ice cream. And then from that, he was able to piece together his whole life. You start with that little bit of vanilla ice cream or strawberry, whatever you like. <laughs> you know? We start with that one thing and we build from there. We build from that one spot. You know? If you prefer a different metaphor, it's like we just we don't dive into the water over, you know, we put one toe in. How does that feel? I mean, just put the one toe in. That's all we're asking. Just put that one toe in. And we use directed thought to keep the attention on that spot. And you know, we're very proactive. We're very proactive about doing that. We keep the mind there and we keep reminding ourselves. We keep reminding ourselves. You know? And we try to find a good voice to do that as we guide ourselves and keep the mind there and remind ourselves. You know, a voice of compassion. A voice of compassion. You know, it's kind of like, I know this is scary. I know this is painful. But this, this place feels really good, so can you just stay right here? Not like, focus there. It's like, no, focus on this one spot. There's this one good spot. You know, It's a voice of compassion that brings us to that point where we're feeling the breath. I know it's scary. I know it's scary. You know, but just, you can focus. You can, you can stay right here. You know, in fact, there's, there's fear about coming into the present moment. There's fear. It may be subtle, it may not be so subtle. <coughs> I was thinking about calling this talk fear of the present moment. You know, I mean, there's a fear of that dissonance that's there and getting swallowed up by it. You know, there's just the karmic fear that we have about being present. You know, most of our lives, our experience of being present perhaps wasn't so good. You know, when we think about being in the moment, you know, we think about things that have happened to us in the past, and there's fear there. You know, so, you know, our life has been sort of like fear and disassociating from the present moment. You know, so as we come to the present moment, there's going to be some fear there in coming to, in, into the present moment. The more present we get, oftentimes there's more fear. There's the existential fear, right? There's the existential fear that we, when we come into the present moment, that we're faced with, that we're faced with. You know, as we come into the present moment, where we begin to become aware of the truth of our human experience. You know, the truth of sickness, aging, death, and separation. The truth of impermanence. You know, these are the great human truths. You know, the truths of this body. So. You know, we come into the present moment and, you know, we're aware of that, you know, and we're afraid and we don't want to be present. This is why the Buddha said you have to work out your relationship to sickness, aging, and death, particular death and separation. You have to work out your relationship with that. You have to learn to accept that. But how are you going to be present and in this human body and alive if... You're at odds with the most central facts about your human experience, that you're going to die. You know, if you're going to be present, you have to be able to be okay, you know, and open to the truth of what it is to be in this body. If we're going to be in the body, we have to be open and accepting and uh, 
able to put aside our fear about what it means to be in this body, which ultimately means we're going to die. That's why it's so important in this practice to reflect on the truth of death. That's why we chant in the morning. I'm subject to sickness, aging, death, and separation. You know, those... You know, those experiences for most of us are terrifying. So the practice is a compassionate practice, right? You know, just like we open up to the truth of death, we also have to open up to the truth of the dissonance and the pain in the body, right? We have to do that eventually, too. But before we can do that, we have to be able to come into the body and be able to be in the body so we can look at the pain in the body. You know, that's one of the problems, right? The Buddha realized you need to be able to come into the body to understand the body and understand the pain in the body. The only way you're going to come into the body is by following a skillful course, compassionate course, not to jump right into the present and into the body. It's a gradual process, a gradual awakening, little by slowly, my favorite saying. Little by slowly, we make our way to the body. We make this journey. So we start with one spot, and we try to make it feel good, a good home for the mind. We try to make that spot feel good. We try to shape that experience of the body so that that experience of the body at that one point is pleasant and easeful. So we shape a pleasant experience right there at that point, a good home for the mind, a good home for the mind. It's like you know, making a good home for your family, you know, where the family wants to sit around the hearth. You know. That's what we do right here with the spot. So, as we develop that spot and it feels good and we start to feel comfortable with being there, then the mind starts to be more willing to stay there. You know, and as the mind starts to be more willing to stay there, it stays there and stays there, and that's how concentration develops. That's why the Buddha knew to develop strong concentration, the breath had to feel good, because the mind wouldn't stay there long enough for you to be able to to, you know, you develop strong concentration focus by, you know, it's just repetitions. You know, it's just doing it. You know, you, so to do more repetitions, it, it's got to feel good. That's how you strengthen the mind in terms of being able to focus <coughs> in that spot. So when we do that and the mind is willing to stay there and we're able to keep the mind there, then it becomes a refuge, it becomes someplace reliable, someplace that's strong. You know, we have that quality of inner strength. You know, and we start to know, all right, I can come into this body and it might be difficult, but this spot is really strong and I can always go there. And I can always go there. So even though I'm in this, I'm out in the storm, I know that there's a place that I can go to because I've really developed this strong home for the mind. And I can keep my mind right there, no matter what. If there's dissonance in the body, if fear arises, and so forth. You know, the Buddhist teaching on fear is really interesting. You know, there's this idea that you know, you know, if you're a follower of the Buddhist paths, you march through the fear. The Buddha said, you shouldn't do that unless you, you're equipped to do that. You know, don't go into the wilderness, he said, until you've developed the skills to be able to be in the wilderness. Don't try to take on fear until you've developed the skills so that you're confident, so that you have the skills and that you're confident that you can go into places that are fearful. This is what we're doing in developing that one spot. You know, we're not going into this fearful place. We're finding a place that feels really good uh, and a place that we know that we can ground our attention on. You know, so this is such an important skill that we develop this refuge here by making the breath pleasant. And this is how we begin to be able to be with fear. I mean, I always tell that story about, you know, learning this, what I'm talking about, and never having really learned it, and never having learned Anapanasate. And, you know, so I didn't really have that place that I could go to. And I didn't know that that was what I was supposed to do. 
when I felt fear. And that one night when I went to do, go do something that historically I found fearful, going to a social event, you know, a, a book party that a friend of mine was having who was a writer, you know, and I was walking through Soho, you know, and it was like the fear came up, you know, that lifetime of fear of social get-togethers and people, and it was like the fear came up and it just clenched me. And, you know, it was like, it was like that for a minute, and then it was like, oh, the breath, the breath. It was, this was a huge point in my, my practice. And I went to the breath. I was like, ah, oh, I'm going to be okay. Fear is still there, but you know what? I can keep the mind on the breath. And I went to the party. Yeah. But it, it changed my experience of fearful experiences and how to work with fear. You know? And it really uh, showed me the power of you know, the breath as a refuge. Because that you need to have that if you're going to, you know, make that journey into the body. So as we're making this journey into the body and we're developing this one point, uh, it's really important that uh, it requires a lot of effort, right? So it's really important that we look at the quality of our effort. We talked about that a little the other night, more than a little, with our attitude and the intention that we're practicing with. Uh, that quality of effort in terms of intention is really important, but also uh, how we're making effort. You know, the uh, the uh, kind of effort that we're making. Yeah. So what we learn to do is not to force the mind onto the body, not to force the mind onto the breath. It was like, you know, what my parents would do. You gotta go to this party. <laughs> you, know, you gotta go to this birthday party, you know, when you're five years old and I'm terrified. Now, we, don't, we try not to do that. We try not to do that. You know, and if you don't go, I'm gonna kick the, sh no. I mean, I don't wanna go there, but it's true, you know? So it's like we don't force the mind onto the breath. We're more compassionate. We're gentle. We're kind. We're easeful with our effort. Not be there. It's like, this is a good place. We're gentle. We're safe. We, we, we say, this is a safe place. This is a good place for you to be. That's the quality, this easeful quality of effort, not forcing ourselves onto the body and onto the breath. So this is something really to watch in your practice. It's like, I mean, think about it, you know? It's like if you're forcing it, you know, you're forcing yourself to do something you don't want to do, I mean, the results there are going to be somewhat askew, right? So we have to see when we're pushing, right? You know, we're pushing to make the breath easeful. You know, we're just kind of exerting our will. That's the way a lot of us learn to make effort. The one who spends the more time in the library is going to be the best student, you know? you know? So we have to see the pushing, the trying, the striving. You know, maybe you see that voice or the character, you know, the trier or the striver. Trying to make something happen. Trying to make something happen. You know, so can we let that character get out of the way and put those voices to the side? We could say, can we get out of the way? And ask those selves to move aside and allow the body's wisdom, allow the body's wisdom to show us how to make effort. I mean, the body knows exactly how you need to make that effort to put the attention on the breath. So just notice when you're kind of getting in the way, I'm, I'm pushing. You know, just back off a little bit and let the body's wisdom show you the amount of effort that you need to apply. That the term uh, that the Buddha used is internal assurance. You know, not relying on the mind that says you've got to make that effort and focus on the breath. You know, the heart knows exactly how you need to make that effort, just like a good parent knows how to parent a child. You know, the Buddha's classic story on making effort is the story of Sona, the monk, who, uh, uh, you know, and, and you know, the Buddha gave him the metaphor about how to make the right amount of effort by comparing 
uh, discernment and knowing what the right amount of effort was to the tuning of a stringed instrument, knowing if it was too tight. You know, a lot of times we're too tight, maybe we're too loose. Can you find it just right? A lot of people don't know that, I think sort of the assumption is Sona was kind of a slacker, but actually he was a striver. And you know, and the story is the Sona was doing walking meditation so much that his feet were bleeding. And he was like, this sucks, I hate this practice. I'm gonna quit. And the Buddha, you know, in his infinite wisdom, kind of read his mind and showed up there and said, whoa, 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 don't quit. Just soften your effort a little bit. Just soften your effort a little bit. Practice with compassion for yourself. You know, and of course, in no due time, Sona was awakened just by finding the right amount of effort. You know, because your innate wisdom knows the amount of effort that you need to make. And it's only your innate wisdom that's going to lead you to true happiness. So we have to start to rely on that more and more and not on, this is what I want to happen. This is what I want to happen. So we come to the breath and we make that breath feel really good. You know, we call that step evaluation. You know, we see, it just begins by observing, right? And seeing the dis-ease in the breath. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, we always talk about really taking an interest. And I mean, I, I find it infinitely interesting uh, when you really start to look at the breath and understand the breath, because the breath is a reflection of the mind. I mean, when you look at the breath, you can see the mind. I mean, there's been times when I've, I've had really good focus and clarity in looking at the breath, and I could see my mind and, you know, my mind over the course of my life, I could see the four oceans of tears right there in that breath. But the mind, the breath is a reflection of the mind. The disease that we see in the breath is a reflection of our suffering, a direct reflection of our suffering, De- direct reflection of those four oceans filled with tears. So what we do in the evaluation stage is we see that. Now this is the beginning actually of bringing awareness to our pain. Yeah? On this very simple level, we start to bring awareness to our pain. We see the disease in the breath. We bring awareness to it. Instead of running away from the pain in the body, right, you see this? Normally the body's full, we run away, we avoid the body, we pick up the phone. This is the beginning of turning to the body and its pain by seeing the disease in the breath. Let me look at the disease in the breath. With compassion, with calmness, with awareness. We just open up to it. There's disease, and we just let it be. That's why I love that two-way, because you're not doing anything other than bringing awareness to your suffering, bringing awareness to disease. And you're not trying to change it, you're letting it be. You know? You're letting your heart see it. You're letting your heart see it. When, I mean, you probably all know this. When the heart sees the disease in the breath, it lets go. Now, just by bringing awareness to it, you're creating a non-attached relationship to it, so it starts to ease, because you're getting out of the way, and the body is starting to self-regulate, self-heal. You know, it's like we were talking in one of the interviews about how sometimes, uh, you know, we push the breath. The breath is short, and we push it to make it long. You know, or it's, it's, it's really long, and we push it, and we squeeze it. Tom Jeff says, we squeeze it to make it short. The heart sees that. You know, it's like you sort of can't say, don't squeeze it or, you know, make it long, you know, or make it short, you know, but the heart sees that and knows exactly what to do, right? You ever notice that? It knows exactly what to do. It knows exactly what you need. I could say you know what you need. In your, in your heart, in your innate wisdom, you know exactly what you need to do. So the heart lets go. That's the ease. That's the ease. So that's why the ease begins to emerge. That's the Dharma in a nutshell, right there. That's the Dharma in a nutshell. You see your suffering, you bring wholehearted, compassionate awareness to it, and you see the end of suffering, right there in the breath. That's why the Buddha said, if you can do that with the breath, if you can practice mindfulness of the breath in the way that he taught, you can practice mindfulness of everything else and all of your suffering, and you can find an end to suffering. Right there in that moment. It's really hard to do that with, like, you know, suffering over something really intense, you know. But uh, 
the disease. Now we want to change it right right away, and you know it's like, but I can just can I just look at the disease and observe it and let the heart understand it and then begin to see that ease as it emerges, and then we cultivate that ease. <coughs> and as the breath comes into a state of regulation, it conditions the body. The breath regulates the central nervous system. You know, that same central nervous system that's so out of whack that we create external central nervous systems because we can't stand to be in this one. The way that you change that is by developing that easeful breath so your central nervous system starts to come into a state of regulation. That's the ease that you start to notice in the body. And then from there, you can start to open to the full body as the body starts to heal as the body self-heals or self-regulates gradually. And we find those places of ease where the energy is flowing, you know, and we just allow it just to flow, just right, we don't push it, allow it to be pleasant so the mind will stay there. All right, here's some places in the body that I can be right now. We don't try to force it into other areas at the beginning, right? All right, the arms feel good. All right, let me just be here. You know, you're starting to make that journey into the body. You're not forcing the issue. Let me be here in the arms. Let me be here in the hands or the feet. You know, and then gradually, you know, the rest of the body starts to feel good. And we notice those parts of the body that we've ignored and that have been neglected, like roads that have been covered up with old branches and brambles and shrubs and litter. You know, and we begin to kind of clear that away and bring our awareness to those parts of the body that have been neglected. And then the parts of the body start to link up and the energy starts to flow. And that's rapture. You know, and that conditions sukha, this quality of pleasure in the mind. And that basically is like, you know, this whole body is in such a bad place. I don't mind being here. This feels pretty good. This sukha. This body. We feel it through the body. And that's kind of the first jhana. That's our goal. You know, if we, if we attain first jhana, you can become awakened. I mean, that's a really good goal to have, is first jhana. So that's a goal to work towards. And one of the things I've kind of spoken to, we've talked about a lot in the groups, is the importance of patience, right? To really be patient in this process. You know, you know the teachings of the Buddha say there's certain things where patience is called for, and one is with regard to the development of your Dharma practice, because we tend to be very impatient. I want to be further along. And we have to understand that the Dharma is an unfolding process, and that it's not our process, it's the Dharma's process. You know, as they sometimes say, it's like, it's going to happen on God's time, not yours. You know, so we get out of the way, and we let the Dharma do its job, and do its job in its, in its time, and we're patient. We're patient. And I always like to say, you know, you cultivate patience by seeing impatience. By seeing impatience, and then just incline to patience. It's like, can I be okay? Can I be okay where I am right now? You ever do that in the meditation? It's like, nothing is happening. This sucks. All right, can I just be okay with where I am right now? Can I just be here? Is there any goodness here? Is there any ease? Holy shit, there's a lot of good stuff here. I wasn't even noticing it because I wanted to be somewhere else. I wanted to be somewhere else. And we start to, oh, there is all this ease here. There is a sense of well-being here. We start to see when we put aside the impatience that there is ease, there is happiness. You know, when we're in a state of impatience, we're thinking about the future, right? That's thinking about the future. Why are the monks happy? Because they don't dwell on thoughts of the future. You know, we're not in the present moment. We let go of the impatience, we come into the present moment. And there starts to be some ease that we start to see in the present moment. There starts to be some happiness. Because you know, it's only in the present moment that we're going to find happiness. So if you're in a state of impatience, you're not going to find <coughs> happiness. You know, so we're very impatient to get somewhere, so we'll be happy. But actually, when we pull back into the present moment, happiness is right there. And it's the only place where we're going to find it. You're not going to find it in the future. There is no such thing as the future. That's just an idea that we have. So maybe when we come back, you know, there's just a little bit of ease and a little bit of happiness. Good enough. You know, good enough. You know, I started talking about that years ago in these retreats. Good enough. And one day I was talking to Tom Jeff and telling him, he said, oh, that's what the Thais always say, good enough, good enough, it's good enough. So 
It's like, you know, it's never good enough for us, right? It's like, that's a real radical way of being. Good enough. Is this moment right now good enough? Is this moment right now good enough? Is this breath right now good enough? Is this little bit of ease that I have right now in the breath good enough? Is the little trickle of rapture that I have right now good enough? So we just allow the body's wisdom to guide us and we see what happens. You know, the body has this wisdom. And we let that lead us to happiness, not the mind. This is why patience is so important, because we have to let our innate wisdom guide us, ultimately. We have to develop this internal assurance. You know, and it will, our innate wisdom will guide us to happiness, but it's just not on our timetable. So when there's this quality of rapture and sukha, then the mind wants to stay. You know, we get to a point in rapture, in step three, and sukha and rapture, and you know, we've all probably experienced it to some extent where it's like, okay, I'm willing, this is all right, I wanna stay here. You know, the Buddha said, all concerns about the household life are left to the side, and we're content to be right here. We're content to be right here. There's been times when I've really worked on cultivating the full body awareness and the rapture and really worked on making it stable, 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 steady. And there's just been this quality of contentedness. This quality of contentedness. The mind is happy to be where it is. So practice being present in the body with ease. Practice being present. You know, in the, in the meditation, wherever you are, it's good enough, with some ease. And then really try to work to make that concentration stable. You know, it's just practice. It's just practice being present. It's a good way to think of it. Practice staying in the present moment with ease. You know, we think, all right, I got a little bit of ease. I got to get more. Or I got to get to something else. Where's the insight? Where's the awakening? Pop, pop, pop. Right? It's like, can we practice just being present? with a little bit of ease, with a little bit of sukha? Can we just practice being present? You know, and really make that solid and steady. Not having to do anything else or to get on to the next thing. It's like, here I am in this moment. Fabricate like that. You know, Somebody was talking about doing that in one of the interviews. You know, just kind of pausing and saying, okay, right here I am. In this moment, present, right now. That was what I was kind of talking about at the beginning of the talk, this idea of you know, learning to use fabrication. You know, it's like, okay, what does it mean to be present? Well, let me try seeing that right now. Okay, present right now, right here, with a little bit of ease. So we always talk about what Ajahn Lee said. We establish the breath and this sense of ease and this mindfulness of the body, and then we maintain it. You know, and maintaining it is really the key. I mean, that's really the goal, is to be able to maintain that ease and that sense of well-being in the body in all postures, and that sense of ease in all postures. So the walking meditation is a really good practice for that. It's why I really, you know, once I started doing the Thai style of walking meditation, it really all started to come together, because what was I doing? I was focusing on the breath, allowing the breath to regulate ease in the body. I was feeling the ease in the body, and I was just walking in an easeful style. Before that, I had been doing a very regimented style and feeling the feet. You know, it's like, not much ease in the feet. You know? So we really think about when you're doing walking, walking with ease. Think about that. Walking with ease. Somebody was talking about that. You know? Walking with ease and being aware that you're present. You know, sometimes you can just pause. It's like, here I am in the present moment present moment, right here. You know, we tend to be thinking about, what do I need to do to get further along? I mean, what's going to happen? Or what are they going to have for lunch? So just stop. Stop. That's a good instruction. Stop. Right here. Be present. Be present. Now again, if there's that sense of ease, you know, it's much more appealing to us to be right there and to be present. So we try to do that in the walking, but also in all postures, right? 
and we can practice that. And it's a good place to practice that, right? Because you know you're developing this ease in the body. So the retreat's a good place to practice that. You know, to be in the body, to be with a sense of ease, to be on the buffet line with a sense of ease, to walk up the stairs with a sense of ease. To pause every now and then. Present moment. I'm right here. I'm right here. And we seek to be in the world with ease. And that's what enables us to be in the present moment. To be in the body with ease and with sukha. So get to know the present moment with the ease. Right? It's not just the present moment. You know, with some shaping of the present moment in terms of there being ease in the body and a sense of sukha, pleasure. Get to know the present moment. Not fighting the present moment. Just being. Just being in the present moment. You know, we're fighting. We're fighting the present moment. We're just being in the present moment. And if we can do that, then we can begin to see the happiness that's there. Because that's where the happiness is. It's right there in the present moment. But if we're fighting the present moment and we're at odds with the present moment, we're not going to see it. So there has to be that sense of ease where, all right, I feel pretty good in the present moment. I'm not fighting it. Because it's not enough just to be present, right? There needs to be presence with that sense of ease and a little bit of sense of well-being. You know? And then you're able to just be and know the happiness that's there in the present moment, because it's there, because it's there. We just have to learn to see it. So we do this out of love. We do this out of love for ourselves because we want to be happy. We're mindful of the breath. We cultivate that easeful breath. We cultivate this quality of ease in the body. We practice this walking meditation with ease out of love for ourselves. You know, one of the phrases that we use in loving-kindness meditation, you know, that's an expression of metta and love for ourselves is, may I be at ease? May I have ease of being? Now, that's an expression of love. You know, that's wishing ourselves happiness when we wish ourselves ease of being. So we do this because we have a wish to be happy. We practice out of love for ourselves. <clears throat> 